The reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 9, starting at verse 1. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king answered, asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machia, son of Amiel, in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Machia, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down again and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son, Hanan, succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanan concerning his father. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite commanders said to Hanan their lord, Do you think David is honouring your father by sending envoys to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you only to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanan seized David's envoys, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments at the buttocks and sent them away. When David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, stay at Jericho till your beards have grown, then come back. When the Ammonites realized that they had become obnoxious to David, they hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Beth Rehob and Zobar, as well as the king from Maaka, with 1,000 men and also 12,000 men from Tob. On hearing this, David sent Joab out with the entire army of fighting men. The Ammonites came out and drew up in battle formation at the entrance of their city gate. 
while the Arameans of Zobar and Rehob and the men of Tob and Maacah were by themselves in the open country. Joab saw that there were battle lines in front of him and behind him, so he selected from the best troops in Israel and deployed them against the Arameans. He put the rest of the men under the command of Abishai, his brother, and deployed them against the Ammonites. Joab said, if the Arameans are too strong for me, and you are t- then, you, then you are to come to my rescue. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to rescue you. Be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. Let God do what is good in his sight. Then Joab and the troops with him advanced to fight the Arameans, and they fled before him. When the Ammonites realized that the Arameans were fleeing, they fled before Abishai and went inside the city. So Joab returned from fighting the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. This is God's word. Now, I can't be entirely sure, but I think the only reason that the author included the name Mephibosheth so many times was he just thought this will be fun for somebody reading in church in a few thousand years. Well done. You did tremendously well. Evening, everybody. My name's Phil. I'm the associate vicar here, and it's my privilege to bring this wonderful passage with this strange name to you tonight. But before we get there, it is time to read the bands. I publish The Bands of Marriage between Andrew Gordon Jack of St. Jude and St. Paul Mildenay Grove and Grace Elizabeth Diane Harrison of St. Stephen and St. Thomas Shepherd's Bush. This is the second time of asking. If any of you know any reason in law why they may not marry each other, you are to declare it now. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to see through this historical account to the eternal reality of your great kindness offered to us in Christ. Help us to see, and do more than just see, but to receive and delight in it. And we ask this for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, some words have particular meanings in particular cultures. They mean very different things in different cultures. So if you've lived all your life in the Arabian Peninsula, and then you move to London, and you turn on the news one day, and you hear the weather forecaster tell you in hushed, grave tones that we are facing a serious heat wave. Then as you, as you gingerly step outside, clutching your bottle of iced water and your portable fan, you might be rather surprised to see it's 26 degrees Celsius. Heat wave, it's kind of got a very different meaning in London from the Arabian Peninsula. Likewise, when I started work um, at a law firm many years ago in a previous job, there, I was I was delighted as a Christian to see that there was a, there was a standing order that on the first Friday of every month, we all met in the conference room for morning prayers. I thought, wow, I had no idea. It turns out that morning prayers is the, it's just the old-fashioned term for when everybody in the department explained what important piece of work they happened to be going on. I'm just really glad I didn't volunteer to go first, you know. <laughs> I mean, great way for everybody to find out I was a Christian. Words can have different meanings, or ordinary words, common words, can have special meanings in particular cultures. And at the heart of 2 Samuel 9 and 10 is a very common word with a very special meaning. It appears in the first verse of of chapter 9 and then in the second verse of chapter 10. 
I wonder if you can see it, the word kindness, kindness. Actually, if you flick back to chapter 7 and verse 15, exactly the same word appears there. As David is receiving God's promise, and God promises to show him, chapter 7, verse 15, love, but my love will never be taken away. Same word, same word. It's a Hebrew word, uh, literally chesed. It means love or kindness. In some translations, it's just called loving kindness. And actually, that's what I'm going to say tonight, loving kindness. And it is one of the most important words in the whole Bible. It's a word God frequently uses to describe his relationship with his people. In the heart of God, this loving kindness is a very special thing. It's a loving kindness that doesn't originate in the lovableness of the people, but in the affections, the heart of God. It's a loving kindness which is at the very heart of the covenant God makes with his people. Not just, I will provide for you, I will protect you, but I will love you. It's a loving kindness which persists even as God's people reject and distrust and turn to worship other gods like a cheating lover. And it's a loving kindness that radiates right through the hundreds of years of history of the Old Testament, shining even in the darkest and most miserable passages. Uh, if you've got um, God children or kids of your own, you may have come across the Jesus Storybook Bible. It has a particularly wonderful translation for this word, chesed. Sally Lloyd-Jones describes it as, she translates it as, God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Isn't that wonderful? God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. His love, his kindness, his loving kindness. In chapter 7, as God's people, as we've seen, are moving from the misery of anarchy to the blessing of a godly monarchy with God's appointed king, and God will pour his blessings into his king and through the king to the people. In chapter 7, God promised, I will, I will show loving kindness to you, King David. And in chapter 9 to 10, we see how this loving kindness flows through the king to his people. But we're also going to see there is a right way and a wrong way to respond to God's loving kindness. And this is a hugely important thing because it is central to how God wants to interact with you and me. And therefore, understanding what it is and how we respond is an important thing, whoever you are tonight. Okay, just two points. Um, Mephibosheth received the loving kindness of the king with humble gratitude and the Ammonites rejected the loving kindness of the king with cynical pride. Firstly, Mephibosheth received the loving kindness of the king with humble gratitude. Now, this really is one of the most lovely passages in the entire Old Testament. It just is. And what we see is David treats Mephibosheth with a loving kindness that is undeserved, abundant, and promised. Firstly, uh, undeserved. Have a look at chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. We'll, you'll hear more of Ziba in a few chapters' time. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there anyone, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's lame in both feet, 
Where is he? The king asked. Zeba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. Now, I doubt we have any conception of just how counterintuitive, countercultural, how nuts what happens here is. Now, humanly speaking, this just makes no sense. Saul was Israel's first king. He disobeyed God and was rejected by God. And in his place, God said, David is to be the king who will rule my people. What followed was decades of bitter civil war as Saul refused to allow God's king to rule God's people. And he clung to power with blood-soaked hands. It is only just a couple of chapters ago that peace has broken out. And so when David asks about survivors of the line of Saul, you're not expecting the word loving kindness to appear in the same sentence. I mean, history tells us if you want your throne to be secure, you ensure you bump off every possible male heir of the previous king. You just do. One of the most famous episodes in British history concerns this, the princes in the tower. Uh, Magnificent hair, you have to say, Um, for prisoners. I mean, seriously, it's incredible. But um, Edward V there on the right, and then his younger brother, um, Richard, the Duke of York. And they were deposed by the dastardly King Richard III, the real um, villain of English history in about 1483. And they were confined to the Tower of London, and almost definitely they were, they were killed one night in the Tower of London. Um, he's so evil that they've covered his face, um, the, the man who carried out the deed. No one knows who it was who did it. But anyway, you just cannot have a rival allowed to live who could one day say, you know what, I've got a stronger claim on the throne as you. Now actually, even Mephibosheth's name is ominous. It's not just a nightmare to pronounce it also has a bad resonance. It comes from the same root as Ish-bosheth. So what you may be thinking, if you remember a few weeks ago, when Saul died, the leaders of his part of Israel put one of his sons on the throne and the war was between David and this son of Saul, whose name was Ish-bosheth. And Mephibosheth's name is very similar. It's the same root. And yet... David wants to show kindness, loving kindness to this potential rival, to this man who could rebel against his throne. So negatively, Mephibosheth is a massive threat to David. He just is a huge threat. And positively, he has nothing to offer David. We learned in chapter four, he was dropped as a child um, when his nurse was, uh, was fleeing and he was crippled because of it. And the disability, it's not recorded to kind of stir up pity. It wasn't that kind of culture back then. In those harsh times, it was just another indication of worthlessness. Here is a man with nothing to offer David. Mephibosheth's own, I mean, his name is related to the word for shame. And the place that he's living is Lodibar, which means no thing. Here is absolutely nobody from Nowhereville. He's got nothing to offer the king. When he appears before David and David says, why should I keep you alive? He's got nothing. You do a survey of 100 royal advisors, and all 100 are going to say, bump him off. No question, bump him off. Mephibosheth himself, he knows he has no right to expect anything from David. He exclaims in verse 8, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? 
But David, David is resolved to show him loving kindness. Verse 6, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to him, to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Extraordinary. Now, we're not told how Mephibosheth felt as he limped into David's presence and bowed or collapsed at his feet. But we know David had to tell him, don't be afraid. I mean, surely he was trembling. Even if he'd heard, David is planning on showing you kindness. Could he really have believed that? But what was he to do? (laughs) It's not like he could run. But then as he cowers on the ground, he hears the king speak. I will surely show you kindness. Now, when you take the crown, you get the land of the previous king. That seems to apply across pretty much every culture. And yet David says, no, 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 I'm going to give you back the land that belongs to Saul, your family land. Now, you've got to be honest, there is a legal reason he might do this. When God uh, parceled out the land, the promised land, to the people of Israel, it was strictly allotted by tribe and within the tribes by clan and by family. And it was meant to stay within those families forever. So in, in a sense, David's doing what he should do at this point as God's king. But David goes well beyond what's required. He says, do you see at the end of, at the end of verse 7? And you will always eat at my table. Now Saul's family hunted David through the wilderness, killed his companions, took his wife, and plunged the entire nation into a brutal, bloody civil war that raged for years because they refused to obey God and do what he said. And yet... David wants to welcome Saul's grandson to the heart of his home to share his table with his sons forever. No probation period, no expiration dates, just a promise of lifelong provision at the table of the king. Verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Can you imagine the first meal? David's family are there, his inner circle too, the loyal followers who who went with him in the wilderness years, who stood side by side with him in the battles during the civil war, and then in shuffles Mephibosheth. What do they think is going to happen? What? Is he going to be made to crawl under the table, beg for scraps? A bit of sport to humiliate the last dregs of the line of Saul. Look, here is the supposed royal family of Israel. Look at what it's become. No, the king welcomes Mephibosheth right up to his end of the table and seats him by his own sons, calls on the attendants to serve him food and wine. It's as abundant as it is unexpected loving kindness that he shows. It's undeserved, it's abundant, it is also promised. Why does David do it? Mephibosheth has no reason to expect it, so why does he do it? Well, David tells us, verse 1 and verse 7, I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Back in 1 Samuel 20, 14 to 17, David had pledged, he'd promised to Jonathan, whatever happens, Jonathan knows David's going to be king. And, but David 
promises Jonathan, whatever happens, I will show kindness to your family, to whoever's alive. David doesn't do it for Mephibosheth's sake, but because he made a promise. And he's going to keep that promise, no matter the cost, he will do it. Is that not a beautiful passage? It's a whole lot more beautiful when you realize this isn't about some poor guy in some other place some time ago. This is a picture or a shadow showing how God treats you, how he welcomes you. But before we get to that, let's look more briefly at the contrast in chapter 10. The Ammonites reject the loving kindness of the king with cynical pride. Now, it might seem a very unconnected account. You've got this little domestic scene of a, of a poor crippled boy being welcomed to the king's table, and, and then this account of warfare and all sorts going on in chapter 2. But the link, the link is the kindness of the king. In the course of time, chapter 10, verse 1, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son, Hanan, succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanan concerning his father. The same gracious offer is made to another undeserving recipient. See, when the Israelites had escaped from Egypt, the Ammonites had sought to destroy them in the desert, to wipe them out while they were vulnerable. And so, Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, the Ammonites were under a curse from God from that point on. So like Mephibosheth, they have absolutely no right to expect anything but the sword from the king of Israel. But like Mephibosheth, kindness is shown because of someone else. The old king Nahash apparently at some point had shown kindness to David. And so David is now returning the favor and showing kindness to his son Hanan. But at that point, the similarities with chapter 9 come to an abrupt end. Hanan's name, irony of all ironies, means gracious, but he's a graceless fool. He responds to David's message of condolence with cynicism, humiliates the envoys. He has them shaved, stripped, and sent packing, no doubt, before a baying mob of mocking people. And so they travel back half naked, and David, in his kindness, allows them to, to stay in Jericho until their beards have regrown. And now, Hanan will learn that kindness is not the same as weakness. Listen to... Paul's warning in Romans chapter 2 against those who ignore God's kindness and patience and mistake it for God's weakness and lack of concern about sin. Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. David shows kindness to the Ammonites, but it doesn't lead to closer ties with God's people, to a repentance uh, from their paganism. Instead, it leads to war. The Ammonites hire Aramean mercenaries, but both armies are crushed by David's general Joab. Now, the question that isn't answered, but I think we're probably left asking is, why is it Mephibosheth behaves so differently from the Ammonites? What's the reason that, that one receives the king's kindness with gratitude and the other with cynicism? 
Well, we're not told, but the contrast is pretty hard to miss. I mean, look at Mephibosheth. He is weak and he is vulnerable and the king's kindness is his only hope. Hanan, where he feels strong, sitting on a throne in his city, surrounded by his soldiers. He feels no need for David's kindness. He sees no danger in rejecting it. One is humble, for he recognizes he has nothing and needs kindness. One is proud and sees no danger, no need, and so turns away. Now I think we're ready to apply the passage and think what it teaches us today. It's very simple, really. Receive God's loving kindness gladly. See, the Old Testament, it, in David, it points towards Christ, or you might say it illustrates what the New Testament teaches, which is that God shows undeserved kindness to sinners. In Luke 19.10, Jesus declared, Look, the very reason I've come to earth, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And for those who receive his loving kindness, there is eternal blessing as we are welcomed at his table. But for those who reject, there must be judgment. And you see, the truth is, you and I are like Mephibosheth. We are descended from a line of rebels who have trashed God's world and inflicted incalculable misery on one another while treating God our loving creator with a shameful disdain. And so you and I come to God with nothing, nothing to offer him. We are spiritually lame, having crippled our souls with sin. Actually, we're a whole lot worse than Mephibosheth. It's not just that our ancestors rebelled against God. We ourselves, as we sin, rebel against God again and again and again. Indeed, we're actually like the Ammonites. Deuteronomy 23.3, the Ammonites were under God's curse. And yet here is David offering them kindness. And John 3.36 warns us, you and I are under God's wrath. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Remains. It's there already. But when you turn to Christ, the wrath is removed. God reaches out to us in his undeserved kindness. Paul writes these words to Titus. That we'll see on the screen. Titus 2. At one time, we too were foolish disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. The kindness of God appeared in Jesus Christ. And still today, in his kindness, he holds out the offer of forgiveness and love to us the offer of relationship and welcome, the offer of eternal life and hope. But there is no neutral option open to you tonight. There is no spiritual Switzerland, no fence to sit on. Ultimately, everybody, everybody either receives God's loving kindness extended in Jesus gratefully and gathers at the king's table or rejects it and suffers the king's judgment. That is the fate of every human. 
And you can receive that loving kindness tonight. You can put your trust in King Jesus and receive from him forgiveness and new life and a relationship with Almighty God and the hope of an eternity with him. Look, I know um, well, almost everybody here to say hello to at least. Almost everybody. And you're a very, very nice bunch of people. And many of you have sat at our table for dinner and I, I can't see anybody as I look out that I think, Nah, I wouldn't have you come into my house and have dinner. Hopefully, in time, I'll be able to have uh, all of you at some point, probably not all together. Um, but uh, I'm afraid to say that although any of you would be welcome, I'm not going to say to anybody here, nobody here, hey, look, come to my house every day. Every day you're welcome to sit with my sons and enjoy dinner with us. Every day for the rest of your life. Nobody here, I'm afraid, is going to get that offer. I mean, that would be crazy. <laughs> Nobody does that. And yet, when you put your trust in Jesus, that's what God offers you and me. He says, come to my house. Sit at my table with my son. For all eternity, enjoy the blessing of being in my family, eating my food, celebrating with me. And every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which we'll do shortly, it's just a little foretaste of where we're heading. It's just a little reminder that what happens when you put your trust in Jesus is God welcomes you into his family to eat at his table with him. Do not scorn the offer. Don't put it off. And most here are young, but you do not know how many more times you will hear this offer of Jesus. So receive him tonight. Why wait? What about those uh, who've already received Jesus' offer of forgiveness? Well, let me ask you a question. If you're a Christian here this evening, question for you. Why did God choose to forgive you? Why did God choose you? Why did he reach out to you with his mercy? Now, deep down, if we're honest, almost all of us, we long for the answer to be something about me. We, we want the reason uh, that God saves me, that God forgives me, that God welcomes me into his family because, well, he saw something special in me and he just really wanted me. It's humbling to be reminded that he shows mercy to me not because I'm special, but because he promised to save sinners and he is kind. The truth is, spiritually speaking, like Mephibosheth, I am a dead dog. And that feels a little bit disappointing. What, really? You came to church and you're told you're a dead dog and actually there's no reason on earth why God would want to choose you. It's also actually very liberating and reassuring because it means if I don't turn out to be quite as special as I thought I was, if I don't turn out to be as, as godly, as faithful, as, as bold to, to live for Jesus in the world as I'd hoped, I don't need to fear God's going to reject me. He didn't choose me because he thought I was special. So he's not going to reject me when it turns out I'm not very special after all. I am special because God chose me. Same for all of us. He doesn't choose you because you're special. 
but his choosing you makes you very precious indeed. The right response to that, the right response is not to wallow in self-flagellation that obsesses, I'm so miserably undeserving, as if God's desire is grovel, grovel in the dust. That is what I want, grovel in the dust. No, God doesn't want you to wallow, but to revel. To revel in the grace that lifts us out of the dust and the misery and the mess of sin and that seats us at the table of the king. And God wants us to show the loving kindness we've received from him to others. Even those who are as undeserving of my loving kindness as I am of God's. The reformer uh, Martin Luther died on February the 18th, 1546. His last years were pretty miserable with uh, all sorts of painful ailments. And after he died, they found he had a scrap of paper in his pocket that he'd he'd kept in his hands or in his pocket all the time that he was on his deathbed. And on it was written these words, we are all beggars. This is true. Now you can read that one of two ways. You can read that and think, what an utterly depressing attitude to take to the grave. How miserable. And in one sense, it would be a very depressing way to die. Unless unless you know that the God who rules heaven and hell, the God in whose hands are eternal life and eternal death, is the God who humbles the proud but welcomes beggars to his table. To those who know the God of Mephibosheth, it is a wonderful, humble recognition that our great hope in life and in death is not my worth, but God's loving kindness. And when you know God is the God who welcomes every spiritual Mephibosheth who comes to him, then it is liberating and joyful to know, yep, we are all beggars. Because he is all loving kindness. Let's pray. Our Father God, we pray that you would, you would give us the, the honesty that Mephibosheth shows, that we have no rights before the king. But we thank you that's not a miserable thing to learn. Because while we are all beggars, you are all undeserved, eternal loving kindness. Help us to know that, to receive it, to enjoy it, and to delight in it, knowing that we will spend an eternity gathered round a finer table than this, eating better food and drinking richer wine, because you are the king of all that is good and glorious. In your name we pray. Amen.